the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blind is producing today's program, Clark Hilton Engineering. Dan Rice has given up the use of his office for the sake of the cause. Today we're going to share a classic interview with Mary Graybar. It's one of the most important interviews I think I've done in some time. We talked about the book, her book, Debunking Howard Zinn, exposing the false history, the fake history that turned a generation against America. It's entirely relevant to what we're seeing today across the country with the violent protests um, that have ravaged the countryside. They now tell us in one state alone, over a billion dollars in damage. And in those uh, small businesses and in those areas, it's unlikely that they will recover for years to come. Oregon's main firefighting concern is now in Lake County, where new evacuations were issued yesterday because of the encroaching, it's called the Bratane wildfire, and conditions are ripe for fire growth, both the north and south ends of the 40,000-acre Bratane blaze were active on Tuesday night, driven by erratic winds, and a red flag warning is in effect for parts of uh, Wednesday. Dry and windy conditions may allow new or existing fires to spread rapidly, according to the National Weather Service. Fire officials have advised anyone who doesn't need to be in the area to leave. Paisley, population 270, is among the areas under mandatory evacuation order. Meanwhile, some evacuation levels have dropped in other parts of Oregon, but the state's spate of wildfires is far from over. For example, Clackamas and Jackson counties, along with all the eastern Marion County, remain under some level of evacuation notice. Air quality also remains poor for most of uh, most places in Oregon, but pockets of cleaner air offer hope for days to come. Wildfires throughout the state have killed eight people, left 16 um, more missing, burned about a million acres and destroyed 1,100 homes, 1,145 homes to be precise. The Oregon Office of Emergency Management said on Tuesday, in Marion County, the firefighters have gained uh, greater control over the Oregon uh, fire. It is the largest, the Beachy Creek blaze, using bulldozers to put down lines. Scott Owen, a spokesperson for the agencies managing the fire. The fire that roared down the Sandy Am Canyon last week continues to burn, but is less active because humidity is higher and smoke is preventing the sun from heating up the forest level fuel, the natural fuel there. There's still a risk that the Beachy Fire, uh, Beachy Creek Fire might merge with the Riverside Fire to the north of Clackamas County, but that's growing increasingly unlikely, we're being told. And even if the fires merge, it, uh, it won't make much of a difference because most of the fuel there has been spent. The nearly 191,000 acre Beachy Creek blaze is 20% contained as of Wednesday. Firefighters in Clackamas County have also made progress with the Riverside Fire, which is now 3% contained, a welcome sign of progress after roughly a week without any containment at all. 
The blaze has grown to over 135,000 acres, nearly 136,000, fire officials said uh, today. Meanwhile, no measurable precipitation expected to fall in the area for several days. Much of the county, including the city of Estacada, remains under a level three go now evacuation order. In Lane County, the Holiday Farm Fire has uh, decimated Blue River, where about 800 people live, and ravaged countless other buildings and dwellings along Oregon 126. The fire grew 849 acres from Tuesday to Wednesday. It now covers a total of 167,422 acres and is 8% contained. In Douglas County, the Archie Creek Fire east of Roseburg has grown over 4,100 acres to a total of 125,498 acres. It's now 20% contained. Residents of the um, Idle Yed uh, Yard community uh, will be allowed to visit their homes on Thursday. The Thiessen Fire near Diamond Lake has grown nearly 1,100 acres to about 7,700. It's 1% contained. In Jackson County, no growth of the 32,000-acre South um, Obachain Fire near Medford was reported on Wednesday. The blaze remains 20% Contained The Slater Fire, which burned into Oregon from the northern California area, now covers 137 acres and remains 10% contained. In Klamath, a 14,000-acre uh, 242 fire in Chiloquin is completely surrounded by contaminant um, or containment lines. The blaze is 21% contained, did not grow from Tuesday to Wednesday. All evacuations were lifted as of Tuesday morning. And finally, in Lincoln County, the 2,500-acre Echo Mountain Complex is now 40% contained. The fire did not grow from Tuesday to Wednesday, and some evacuation levels have been downgraded or removed. Some level three evacuations have been downgraded uh, or rather remain in effect, however. The Oregon Department of Transportation has also reopened a stretch of Oregon 18 that had previously been closed. Pilot cars are escorting drivers on a five-mile stretch of the highway, which heads inland from US 101 near Lincoln City. The western half of the fire... um, got 0.13 inches of rain on Tuesday while trace amounts of precipitation fell further to the east. The totals are less than firefighters had hoped for. On Wednesday, firefighters are working to mop up and secure fire areas they've been working on for quite some time. Do please keep them in your prayers and take advantage of the opportunity to reach out to those who have been displaced. Um, Medical Teams International, the Red Cross, and other organizations are providing opportunities for others of us who are concerned to respond. Well, it looks like the air quality for areas west of the Cascades will remain in the harmful ranges for at least a few more days. For days, Portland has had the worst air quality of any major city in the world as more than 30 wildfires burn across the state. Smoke has settled across much of Oregon, with most areas having air quality that ranges from unhealthy all the way to hazardous. It looks like the air quality will stay in those harmful ranges for at least a few more days, but there could be significant relief by the end of the week. All of the smoke that's been over the state is going to be blown out Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. That's according to KGW Chief Meteorologist Matt Safino. He said the smoke forecast model is more encouraging now than it was at any point last week. Um, they offered a day-to-day breakdown across Portland and across the state of Oregon for the remainder of the week. And again, we can expect to see some improvements toward the latter end of the week and into the weekend. 
Meanwhile, Hurricane Sally has brought catastrophic flooding and severe widespread damage after the Alabama landfall. Extensive flooding and damage were reported along the Gulf Coast on Wednesday after Hurricane Sally roared ashore in Alabama, bringing torrential rain that threatens to spread further inland. The U.S. National Hurricane Center in Miami said as of Wednesday morning, Hurricane Sally is now a Category 1 storm downgraded from 2, packing maximum sustained winds of 90 miles per hour and is located about 25 miles west of Pensacola, moving northeast at an agonizingly slow three miles per hour, which means it's uh, inflicting maximum damage at that slow pace. The NHC said that historic and catastrophic flooding is unfolding with up to 35 inches of rain expected in parts of the region. And that's just rain. As the storm churned inland after making landfall as a Category 2 storm near Gulf Shores, Alabama, damage reports were coming in from across the area. The Baldwin County Emergency Management Agency in Alabama reported an extremely dangerous situation as major flooding uh, was reported in the area as well as severe widespread damage. If you're on high ground above flooded areas, being prepared to stay where you are may be the best protection, officials stated in an emergency alert. Officials in Florida's Panhandle have uh, shut down Interstate 10 at the um, Bay Bridge near Pensacola due to sustained high winds on Thursday morning. Multiple roads have also been shut down due to flooding, again, in Florida's Panhandle. Well, a social media post on the two shot deputies has landed the Los Angeles area city manager on paid administrative leave. Apparently, the city manager of Linwood, a Los Angeles area suburb, was put on paid administrative leave Tuesday after his social media post on the ambush. Uh, the shooting of two sheriff's deputies over the weekend was heavily criticized. Jose uh, Omet Tiot. That's my best effort, was put on leave pending an internal investigation following the council's closed session meeting on Tuesday night. Uh, Alator, speaking for the um, commission, put forth a motion to discipline or dismiss uh, the former em- the employee or council member following his personal Instagram post that read, chickens come home to roost after two deputies were shot multiple times while sitting in their patrol vehicle Saturday in the nearby city of Compton. Al Torre, in a text message, said the move against um, Omet Tio was protocol and that he is gone, will not represent Linwood anymore. He represents the city of Linwood 24-7, Al Torre went on to say. He cannot make statements while he's employed by our city, especially when he jeopardizes public safety. Compton Mayor has also changed uh, his tune uh, in the wake of the ambush shooting of the sheriff's deputies. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our next two segments, we'll hear from Mary Graybar debunking Howard Zinn, exposing the fake history that turned a generation against America. Well, Alan Dershowitz has filed a $300 million defamation suit against CNN. Well, the famed attorney and Harvard Law School professor emeritus Alan Dershowitz filed the defamation suit against CNN on Tuesday, seeking the $300 million for what he called a willful, deliberate, malicious effort to destroy his credibility. Dershowitz says CNN selectively edited a clip of his remarks from the Senate floor during President Trump's impeachment trial, where he broke down the illegalities surrounding a quid pro quo as a member of the president's defense team. What CNN did here, and it pains me to say this because, you know, um, was uh, to totally doctor the tape. 
Well, if they had just shown the part where I said if the if he does anything referring to the president illegal, he can be impeached. Dershowitz trailed off, but they doctored the tape to take that out. Dershowitz says he plans to donate any awarding of to charities and to good causes, emphasizing that he's not doing this for himself. I'm doing this to hold them accountable. From a Chinese virologist, we'll talk more about that in the program today, China's government intentionally released COVID-19, that argument she's been attempting to make for some time. Kim Kardashian announced that she's freezing her Instagram and Facebook accounts. You know, first we had the pandemic, then the winds, the fires, and now Kim Kardashian freezing her Instagram and Facebook accounts. You might want to observe a moment of silence or perhaps a bit of glee. The Justice Department will announce charges against a Chinese government-linked computer intrusion campaign. And Vice President, um, former Vice President Joe Biden was rightfully panned for playing <laughs> dispatchio at a Hispanic heritage event. Refugees from socialist countries are warning Americans, don't let it happen here. The latest from business, the Fed is expected to raise economic forecasts and extend its vow to keep rates low. Meanwhile, Oracle, TikTok, the deal decision is imminent. Well, in two days, both uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris called it the Harris administration, first Harris on CNS News and then Biden in the ongoing cluster of Biden blunders. And a U.S. marshal was shot multiple times while guarding the courthouse, this time in Phoenix. Luckily, he was wearing a protective vest. San Francisco plans to give black mothers $1,000 a month during their pregnancy. And Minneapolis City Council is now complaining police aren't policing enough. You might remember they were uh, talking about defunding police. I guess they realize they actually need a police force that is disciplined and working. A Washington Post columnist is complaining that the left has forced her to vote for Trump. Alexandria Petri, she spends the early part of her column criticizing Trump, but admits Biden and the media are worse. Well, the Parkland cop who hid while kids were slaughtered gets his job back from the story. A Broward sheriff de- sheriff's deputy who was fired for taking uh, taking cover behind his truck and then driving away from the Parkland school massacre should be reinstated with back pay. An arbiter has ruled. With Monday's ruling, Deputy Josh Stambaugh is now the second fired deputy to uh, in recent months to have an arbiter rule that they should get their job back after the mass shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. And a coach says most of LSU players caught COVID-19, that it hasn't been an issue. Monday night football continues to see steep declines. And again, the social justice protests are driving away starving fans. Well, Black Lives Matter protesters have been charged for harassing diners in Pittsburgh. The three are charged with a number of misdemeanor charges. President Trump has declared the dawn of a new Middle East as he presided over signing historic document deals uh, yesterday. And up to nine additional nations could join the peace deal with Israel, including Saudi Arabia, the president says. Joe Biden's uh, votes in person wrecks the uh, mail-in voting narrative that's been pushed. The House GOP released a commitment to America agenda. And Senator Tom Cotton says the U.S. should eliminate China's most favored nation trade status. A criminal probe opened by John Bolton's uh, book, This Room, where uh, rather the room where it happened, which may contain classified information, is the subject of that probe. And a former NRA insider painted an unflattering picture of the organization in a National Review article and the book it writes about. A judge has shown the book at or rather thrown the book at 13 alleged Lancaster rioters and sets millions uh, for bail for seven of them. 
Virginia police are hunting for a person or persons who shot at patrol cars uh, three times. That's in Virginia. And uh, evil is real, so says a North Carolina police officer pinning a heartfelt resignation letter to his community amid the unprecedented exodus from the force. Brianna Taylor's family is reaching has reached a massive settlement with the city of Louisville for $12 million. It is unprecedented. And a high school has uh, suspended football players after they carried flags supporting first responders while taking the field for a 9-11 game. An L.A. County sheriff has called out LeBron James for comments he made about black men being hunted down by law enforcement and wants him to match the reward for the two deputies um, who were shot there, uh, their shooter. A Chinese virologist is claiming the Chinese Communist government intentionally released COVID-19. We'll talk more about that if time permits. And a Chinese organization with Communist Party ties is funding a Black Lives Matter venture. A Chinese software firm that provides intelligence to the government and military collected and continues to collect data from some 50,000 Americans. And in a worst-case scenario... Baltimore's uh, murder suspects are being protected by sanctuary laws. President Trump says he favored a plan to eliminate Syrian dictator Bashar Assad, uh, but then Secretary of Defense James Mattis opposed it. Well, the Fred, uh, Fed Trade Commission is preparing a possible antitrust lawsuit against Facebook, and oil demand has collapsed, and it won't come back anytime soon. Well, Southern Baptists want to change their name to Great Commission Baptists, because the word Southern is triggering. Well, on this day in history, 1940, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt signs a Selective Training and Service Act. 1974, President Gerald R. Ford announces a conditional amnesty program for Vietnam War deserters and draft evaders. 1976, the Episcopal Church at its general convention in Minneapolis formally approves uh, the ordination of women as priests and bishops. On this day in history, 1994, a federal jury in Anchorage, Alaska, orders Exxon Corporation to pay $5 billion in punitive damages for the 1989 Exxon Valdez oil spill. The U.S. Supreme Court would later reduce that amount to $507.5 million. On this day in history, 2014, President Obama declares the Ebola epidemic in West Africa could threaten security around the world and orders 3,000 U.S. troops to the region for emergency aid. And finally, on this day in history, 2019, Manhattan District Attorney Cyrus Vance Jr.'s office subpoenas tax returns belonging to President Trump and the Trump Organization through their accounting firm. They have yet to actually receive those documents. Well, another test, it's a new test for COVID-19, was recently authorized, and this one could be a game changer. The Abbott Diagnostics Binax Now antigen test is a new point-of-care test that reportedly costs only $5 to administer, delivers results in as little as 15 minutes, and requires no laboratory equipment to perform. Well, that means it can be used in clinics far from commercial labs or without relying on a nearby hospital lab. Well, that last factor is key. There are other quick COVID-19 tests on the market, but they have all required lab equipment that can be expensive to maintain and operate, and costs can be prohibitive in places that need tests most. Well, this kind of test is reminiscent of rapid flu tests that are ubiquitous in clinics. They'll give providers tremendous flexibility in testing for the disease uh, in not just clinics, but with trained and licensed medical professionals in schools, workplaces, camps, or any other number of places. With other kinds of tests taking sometimes days to produce results thanks to supply chain bottle, 
excuse me, bottlenecks in parts of the country. Innovations like this may be an important part of ensuring everyone who needs a test can get one fast. So what's new about this test? Well, most of the current tests detect viral RNA, the genetic material of SARS-CoV-2. Well, this is a very accurate way of detecting the virus, but it requires lab equipment to break apart the virus and amplify the amount of genetic material to high enough levels for detection. The Binex Now test detects antigens, proteins unique to the virus that are usually detectable whenever there is an active infection. So when this will be available and to whom remains uh, to be uh, answered, but at least this is a promising new test for COVID-19. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll hear from Mary Graybar debunking Howard Zinn, exposing the fake history that turned a generation against America, an important book by Regnery History. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. I have so looked forward to the conversation I'm about to have with my next guest, uh, Mary Graybar. She's the author of Debunking Howard Zinn, Exposing the Fake History that Turned a Generation Against America. Well, Marx's talking points are dominating American education, brainwashing students to believe American history is nothing more than a litany of oppression, slavery, and exploitation. As an African-American, I understand our history. I know it. My family was impacted by it. But I don't buy this stuff. How has this happened? Since 1980, socialist Howard Zinn's A People's History of the United States has dominated the American education system as the textbook of choice for leftist teachers across the country, turning young students against America and into foot soldiers for a progressive revolution. If you want to know where much of what we're seeing now has come from. Well, in the book Debunking Howard Zinn, she exposed or rather exposing the fake history that turned a generation against America. My guest demolishes his popular history, a history pushed by Hollywood celebrities defended by university professors who know better and assigned in high school and college classrooms. There's even a children's version. She reveals uh, Zinn's bag of dishonest rhetorical tricks, his slavish reliance on partisan history, explicit rejection of historical balance, a selective quotation of sources to convey the exact opposite message of what their author intended. Well, Mary Graybar is a resident fellow at the Alexander Hamilton Institute for the Study of Western Civilization and the founder of the dissident professor uh, prof education project. She taught at the college level for 20 years, most recently at Emory University, and her work has been published by the Federalist, Town Hall, Front Page Magazine, City Journal, and many, many others. She joins us today to debunk Howard Zinn. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, you're welcome. My pleasure. Really appreciate it. I want to begin by just asking, who is Howard Zinn? Because while in academic circles he's well-known, in education circles where his uh, book is is pushed and a children's version is now widely available, most people may have, uh, the book came out in, what, 1980? Most people have no idea who Howard Zinn is, although they have seen his influence. Yeah, well, Howard Zinn died in 2010. He was born in 1922. Um, He was a a member of the Communist Party, actually. Uh, We're 99% certain of that. But he promoted a a communist message in his book and in his other writings and spoke favorably about communism. Um, He taught at Spelman College from 1956 to 1963. Uh, which then really did adhere to its Christian principles um, and then uh, was fired from there, uh, incidentally, by the first um, black 
president of the college and the first male president of the college for insubordination. Um, he led the students um, on these protests that were harmful to them and um, inspired them to uh, rebel against the administration and against going to chapel and so forth. And uh, But he was soon landed on his feet, and he was at Boston University where he taught until he retired in 1988. And um, he was asked to write a people's history of the United States in the late 1970s, and basically... Uh, as you reviewed, he uh, wildly distorted the history, threw together, um, you know, some, you know, dubious sources and, and cobbled together this book, which is, uh, which has exceeded all records for a history book of its type in terms of sales and influence. It really is quite remarkable how that has happened. You write in the, uh, I think it's in the preface of the book, about the context in which this book emerged. There were a number of historians who were discredited at that time as his book was about to come out, and somehow his emerged and flourished uh, when a number of historians were discredited, even though he's not a great historian, uh, and, and even critics who would agree with some of his um, uh, priorities had to say that this is not a, a, a good work of history. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, there's Michael Kazin, uh, you know, well-known leftist, and uh, when he reviewed the book, he called it uh, more appropriate to a conspiracy monger's website <laughs> than to a history book. Um, yeah, so it, it was uh, criticized on the left as well. I mean, by any standard measure of history writing, um, what's in a people's history is uh, fraudulent. It's, um, you know, it's not backed up by statistics. It, uh, you know, uh, promotes uh, rumors, a conspiracy theory. Uh, he uh, takes quotations out of context. He makes speakers say the opposite of what they really did say. And up until now, no one has really gone through his book and systematically checked it against uh, his sources or what other historians have said. And I, I did check with historians both on the right and on the left. And I went through his own papers at New York University. I went to the Martin Luther King Center. I went to the Library of Congress and Emory University and did research and, um, and discovered that this uh, book is a fraudulent piece of history. And yet, deliberately so. Deliberately yes. so. And yet, it is it's a very popular book, and in the academy, it's it's uh, embraced in colleges and universities all across uh, the country. Uh, the the young people who were raised on this book are now lawmakers. Uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez is one example, running on socialist platforms. Um, how did his teachings influence this? Um, well, you know, when you hear something like uh, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez calling uh, the detention centers, you know, of, of the people who are trying to come into the country concentration camps, that's exactly what Howard Zinn did in the people's history. Uh, so, you know, we interned the uh, Japanese Americans during World War II. That was widely known, you know, even before um, the order was given. Um, and that's been criticized. Uh, it was criticized, actually, by J. Edgar Hoover and um, George Schuyler, a prominent African-American journalist at the time, a conservative, um, also by uh, Senator Robert Taft. 
So there is a debate about, you know, whether or not that should have been done uh, within the context mm-hmm. of war and what the fears were. Um, but by no stretch of the imagination could those be called concentration camps. Uh, and, you know, Howard Zinn lied about the information. Uh, you know, uh, I mentioned that uh, Kazin called his book, uh, you know, a conspiracy theory. Well, Howard Zinn presents, um, avid- his evidence is that um, there was an article in late 1945 uh, at the end of the war that exposed these uh, so-called concentration camps. Well, that's patently false. <laughs> there were daily newspaper articles about, um, you know, sort of the, uh, the police going after the Japanese as well as German-Americans and Italian-Americans, you know, who were suspect. Uh, there are daily reports. There was a, a film um, narrated by Milton Eisenhower shown in movie theaters. Uh, there was actually uh, an article in the 1942 Harper's Magazine, the same magazine that he cites, that describes life in uh, these camps. Um, you know, it wasn't uh, luxurious, but they were clean. The food was good. There was plenty of it. Uh, there was a, a foreign legion uh, station in, in the one he went to. Uh, people had gardens. Their children played baseball. So um, it, it's uh, just, uh, it's obscene to um, claim that those camps were concentration camps. And as people have rightfully said about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's statement, um, you know, and, and one of the things I point out also is this has such an influence on millennials, uh, you know, the majority of whom now approve of socialism or communism over capitalism, uh, there is a woman who was elected to the Oklahoma City Council, and instead of placing her hand on a Bible, she placed it on a people's history of the United States. Hmm, written by Howard Zinn. Now, how did he yeah. his history become so popular? You, in the introduction, uh, remind us that in Goodwill Hunting, there is a reference, several references made there, and that um, Hollywood has helped to popularize all of this. But trace for us how his history became so popular. Well, the ground had been set. Uh, so a lot of the people, uh, you know, the 1960s generation, the Vietnam protesters, they went into education. Uh, there have been studies done of the percentage of them, and it's disproportionately high. And so they uh, were already writing uh, these uh, uh, ideological left-wing histories. Um, and uh, they, you know, a, a prominent historian, Oscar Hamblin, had, uh, you know, criticized them. Other historians had criticized them. Well, Howard then took what they wrote and just ran with it. <laughs> he made it, you know, even uh, worse. He magnified what they were saying, and he put it together in this book. But he also added this uh, a flair. He had this uh, ability to write and um, to touch people's emotions. He did it illegitimately, um, but he was able to do that. So... He has made people cry, uh, you know, after they read a people's history. Some uh, have become angered. He's inspired Antifa, the guy that was going to blow up um, 
you know, the, the detention center in Tacoma, if you recall that, uh, oh, maybe about a month ago, mm-hmm. uh, he and his manifesto said, read Howard Zinn. He was his hero. Yeah. We're going to continue our conversation, but I do need to take a quick break. Again, we are talking with uh, Mary Graybar. She's the author of Debunking Howard Zinn, Exposing the Fake History that Turned a Generation Against America, a very important book to deconstruct uh, what he has, uh, his influence, what he has written and what the truth is. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Howard Zinn's A People's History of the United States has sold more than 2.5 million copies. It's pushed by Hollywood celebrities, defended by university professors who should know better, assigned in high school and college classrooms to teach students that American history is nothing more than a litany of oppression, slavery, and exploitation. His history is popular, but it's also massively wrong. Joining us uh, to talk about that and continuing our conversation is uh, scholar Mary Graybar, who uh, is the author of Debunking Howard Zinn, Exposing the Fake History that turned a generation against America. Well, there certainly are influencers who have pushed this book and popularized it. But what significance uh, role has Zen played in today's education system, his book as well as his system of education? Well, uh, teachers have adopted his uh, own teaching strategies, which involve not you know extensive reading and uh, writing papers and doing research, but uh, you know, going out and protesting and keeping journal entries and, uh, you know, not taking any tests. So uh, there has been the destruction of knowledge. But um, his book is being used, The People's History of the United States, is being used in colleges of education. And sometimes the teachers that, you know, are using that book are not getting any other version of American history. Uh, so that's what they get, and they pass it on down to their students. And uh, as you probably know, most of the uh, textbooks that are adopted are left-wing anyways. And uh, so they have this notion that Howard Zinn's version of history is true, and uh, so they pass that on to their students. And, you know, if you think about it, you know, people who read A People's History when it came out in the 80s, uh, you know, they've had children. They may have grandchildren by now. And so they think that his version of history is the real one. They don't think there is anything wrong with it. Um, and uh, so, uh, you know, that is passed on through the generations. And so we're getting into the second generation of Zen's influence. Uh, teachers also can go to the Zen Education Project and download lessons uh, from the book, uh, right now there is a campaign to abolish Columbus Day. The Smithsonian, I wrote about this uh, yesterday, is sponsoring teach-ins for teachers um, and using Zinn's materials. And uh, they are learning how to lobby legislators to abolish Columbus Day. Um, it, you know, there are graphic books, you know, comic books, uh, you know, with Howard Zinn. Um, he appears in uh, song lyrics. There, There's a play, uh, you know, it's going to be on Broadway about his life. Um, it, you know, they have uh, book festivals dedicated to him. Uh, Occupy Wall Street had a library in New York City, and uh, Howard Zinn's books were staples 
uh, Black Lives Matter, uh, they're influenced by Zen, and now Antifa is influenced by Zen. And I think we're really getting into some dangerous territory when we're talking about Antifa. So uh, it, 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 it's, you know, it's almost, it's difficult to measure, but uh, if you ask any, you know, the common person, they'll likely uh, say, yeah, I've heard of Zen. Um, some people, you know, uh, saw Goodwill Hunting and were introduced to him. Mm-hmm. Teachers, professors are introducing students um, to him, recommending him. Um, you know, I just heard of that a couple weeks ago. Uh, so it's it's not measured, but uh, by the book sales, by the adoption in the classroom, by the cultural references, Zen's influence, we know, is just growing exponentially. I think most people assume that once something is in print, if it's embraced by the academy, that the, there must be good scholarship. Yet even uh, those on either side of the ideological spectrum have acknowledged that Zen's scholarship is, is uh, poorly done. And it's hard to imagine how he has succeeded as well uh, as he has, particularly among academics. Is it because he is parroting what they want to hear? Uh, How is it that he has managed to resonate with so many, despite the fact that his scholarship is so poor? Um, Yeah, I I think you uh, pinpointed a large part of that. And this is uh, something that I go into in my book. Yes. Uh, but Michael, yeah, Michael Kazin, the, the uh, scholar I mentioned, you know, on the left, you know, was once a member of the Weather Underground and criticized uh, Zinn uh, when the book came out. But in 2010, it, uh, Mitch Daniels, when he was governor of Indiana, had emailed people uh, in education. He learned that Zinn's book was being used in an NEH, National Endowment for the Humanities, summer session for teachers to get continuing education, and he was outraged and expressed it in these emails. Well, these were revealed by an AP reporter in 2013, Um, and by that time, Mitch Daniels was president of Purdue, and Michael Kazin and the other leftists who had criticized him now attacked Mitch Daniels. I mean, it's truly amazing, you know, how they went 180 degrees and, uh, you know, accused Mitch Daniels of ignorance and censorship and not understanding how history is written. Hmm. Um, so, so to, uh, you know, to attack Zinn uh, is uh, sacrilegious in uh, leftist academia. Uh, you know, I, I've even gotten a couple... I got a couple pieces of hate mail before the book was out. (laughs) Because you don't challenge the oracle of Zen. Um, It's important for us to understand his influence, to understand his writing. What do you hope to accomplish when people have a better uh, appreciation for how he has managed to work his way into our education system to influence generations? And are you hopeful that we can reverse course with a clear, um, accurate understanding of history? Um, Yes. Well, my book is intended to be a tool, an expose, up to now, I don't think that students who were fed this stuff or parents or the general public um, had something that would rebut what Howard Zinn is saying. So I try to lay it out. And so every time he makes a misstatement or he plagiarizes 
or he quotes out of context or just lies, I uh, come back and with other sources with my original research and expose that. So for students who may be facing a professor, you know, who loves Howard Zinn um, and his spouting his view of history, uh, they can have this book and go back and say, well, okay, this is what Howard Zinn says, and this is actually what the truth is, and they can go back and check all my footnotes. This is extensively footnoted, um, and they can have a tool, and maybe this will help us to, um, you know, bring down Zinn's reputation, uh, he, you know, and to expose his fraudulence as a scholar. He is not a legitimate historian or a scholar. He is a communist propagandist. I am so grateful for the book. I am grateful for the time that you've spent talking with us about it today, and I would highly recommend it to parents, to students, to anyone who wants to understand the course that the culture is taking, to understand some of our lawmakers and this uh, bent toward uh, Marxism. This is an excellent book to help us uh, not only understand, but to be able to respond effectively. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. You're welcome. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Again, Mary Graybar, author of Debunking Howard Zinn, Exposing the Fake History That Turned a Generation Against America. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. James Blind is producing. Well, the Department of Defense and federal health agencies have outlined plans for a coronavirus vaccine which include having them available for free for all Americans. Well, the plans, uh, they came in the form of a report to Congress and a playbook for states and local governments, according to the Associated Press. Well, the agencies are looking at January for a potential beginning of a vaccination campaign, although it remains possible that this could come later this year. We're working closely with our state and local public health partners to ensure that Americans can receive the vaccine as soon as possible and vaccinate with confidence. That's a quote from Alex Azar, Health and Human Service Secretary, in a statement. Well, vaccinations would start gradually among some segments of the population, such as healthcare workers, other essential workers, and the more vulnerable, before eventually ramping up for distribution to all who want it. Well, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's playbook, the vaccination campaign will be much larger in scope and complexity than seasonal influenza or other previous outbreak-related vaccination responses. Several vaccine candidates currently be going through the trials could end up being approved. The expectation is that for most of them, people would uh, need two doses between 21 to 28 days apart. The playbook encourages providers to give reminders to patients to get their second dose, which must be uh, from the same vaccination manufacturer as the first. An AP poll in May showed that 20% would not get a coronavirus vaccine and 31% were unsure. Since then, Democrats, including uh, vice presidential nominee Senator uh, Kamala Harris, expressed skepticism over a vaccine if one were approved in time for November's election. President Trump said in a Fox and Friends interview on Tuesday that a vaccination uh, could be approved in a matter of weeks which would uh, possibly be before the election. Government officials have insisted that politics will not play a role in vaccine uh, development or availability and that any approved vaccine would meet standards for safety and effectiveness. Americans should know that the vaccine development process is being driven completely by science and data, Azar said in that same statement.
Dr. Li Meng Yan is a Chinese virologist and whistleblower. She made an incredible allegation last night. The Chinese government manufactured and intentionally distributed the COVID-19 virus. Well, Yan, who holds both an MD and PhD, asserts, and I'm quoting, this virus, COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2 virus, actually is not from nature. It is a man-made virus created in the lab. It's based on more innocuous strains, she says, but after the modification, it becomes a very harmful virus. Well, the coronavirus genome is uh, possessed by other researchers, so of course the obvious question is why Dr. Yan is among the few making these charges. She blames the big suppression coming from the Chinese Communist Party government and also their friends in the scientific world. In fact, she says she's a target for being disappeared, that's the word she used, by the Chinese government, as is the case um, with whistleblower Dr. Ai Fin. Uh, Twitter has also blocked uh, Yan's account without explanation. As for her credibility, she says, I worked in the World Health Organization Reference Lab, which is the top coronavirus lab in the world, in the University of Hong Kong. And I got deeply into such investigation in secret from the uh, early beginnings of this outbreak. I had my intelligence because I also get my own unit network in China involved in the hospital. I'm quoting her directly. Also, I work with the top coronavirus virologists in the world. So together with my experience, I can tell you this is created in the lab and owned by the Chinese military. And also it is spread to the world to make such damage, end quote. Well, she didn't speculate on the motive, but said, yes, of course, it was released intentionally. Well, naturally, the Chinese Communist Controlled University of Hong Kong disputes her account, which is, it says, does not uh, accord with the key facts as we understand. Them. And other scientists claim there's exactly zero evidence COVID-19 came from a lab. Well, this isn't Yan's first attempt to expose the Chinese cover-up, nor is it the first time someone has alleged that something's deeply suspect about the virus's origins. Senator Tom Cotton, too much derision, argued back in January that the virus may have originated in China's P4 bio lab in Wuhan, and he and others share Yan's opinion that it was altered. If, as Jan suggests or claims, the release was intentional, however, that brings this to a whole new level. The trouble is that we may never know, despite the vehemence of the argument on both sides of the issue. So it's a rather interesting accusation she has made before. And it's, uh, again, we may never know the answer and it may not be possible for a closed country to verify either the truth or false uh, falsehood behind the story. Well, New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio announced today that to help fight the city's multi-billion dollar budget crisis, his entire office, including the mayor himself, will be furloughed for a week beginning in October. De Blasio's wife, Cherline McRae, and 493 others will take unpaid furlough at some point between October and March, which is expected to save about $860,000, according to the New York Times. We have to make tough choices to move this city forward and keep our budget balanced, de Blasio told reporters. The city has been facing a rough $9 billion budget deficit. He added that the current fiscal year budget is $7 billion less than what the city projected in February. I couldn't have imagined no action by Washington, D.C. up until this point, de Blasio said. I thought it would be an article of faith that there would be a federal stimulus 
but there hasn't been. And I see no indication that there will be for the remainder of this year. Well, with a mayoral salary of 258541 per year, de Blasio is expected to miss out on around $4,972 in a week-long furlough. The mayor mentioned later, while taking questions from reporters, that the city is looking for every possible way to make the moves that uh, we can make while continuing the conversation with longer-term borrowing. Well, the beautiful aspect of American uh, America's constitutional republic is the separation of powers. The different branches of government are assigned specific functions and are limited to the exercise of certain specifically outlined powers. At least that's the design. For example, Congress, which is directly accountable to the people, is charged with legislating on a national level. Uh, level. Executive agencies, which are not directly accountable to the people, may exert only a limited amount of policy-making authority delegated to them by Congress. Well, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention doesn't appear to have gotten that memo. Earlier this month, the CDC issued an order halting residential evictions for non-payment of rent to prevent the further spread of COVID-19. Now, the order bars, in most cases, residential landlords throughout the United States from evicting tenants for non-payment of rent until the 31st of December. And although the order states that tenants remain obligated to comply with their leases and still may be charged for back rent, fines, fees or interest, landlords effectively are left without real legal recourse for the duration of the CDC order. Landlords can't replace tenants who don't pay rent or start legal proceedings against them until next year. Well, landlords who violate the moratorium can also be fined up to $100,000 and face up to one year in prison. I'm not sure how they eat and feed uh, their families, but the CDC's order is problematic, well, for several reasons. First, although it claims otherwise, the agency has neither the constitutional nor statutory authority to implement such a sweeping order. Even if the text of the statute granted it, which it does not, it would be unconstitutional for Congress to give the CDC that type of sweeping pseudo-legislative power that they are now breathlessly exercising. Well, it's not clear whether Congress itself would have the constitutional authority to implement such a sweeping order. And importantly, even if one believes the CDC policy is a good one, allowing an executive agency to read such um, broad and significant power into the text of a statute for the sake of good results, could empower future administrations to do the same thing. But with, with the policies you no longer think are good. So why does the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention have the power to order a nationwide moratorium on evictions? Well, the CDC claims that one section, uh, 361 of the Public Health Service Act, and its implementing regulations grant it this sweeping authority. The agency's interpretation here is fundamentally flawed and stretches its power far beyond what the text permits. To stop the spread of disease, the Public Health Service Act grants the CDC the power of inspection, fumigation, disinfection, sanitation, pest extermination, destruction of animal or articles found to be so infected or contaminated, and other measures as in the Surgeon General's judgment may be necessary for the purposes of carrying out and enforcing regulations. Well, that is, uh, in his judgment, are necessary to prevent the introduction, transmission, or spread of communicable diseases into the United States or across the state. Well, the law doesn't mention a nationwide eviction ban, and the reference to other measures is no help. A basic canon of statutory con uh, construction known as the, uh, in, the, the in the Latin, it uh, is translated 
of the same kind rule is that when a broad, vague term follows a list of specific, that term must refer only to the same sort of things listed before it. Well, nationwide eviction bans are nothing like the localized, limited actions of inspecting, fumigating, or disinfecting specific buildings or neighborhoods or exterminating pests. Well, the CDC must know that its authority under the Public Health Service Act is not nearly as broad as doing literally anything that arbitrarily deems it deems necessary. The agency's own regulation reflects this uh, understanding by limiting its authority to taking reasonably necessary measures, including the specific powers listed in the statute. Well, like the statute, the regulation includes no authority for the sweeping powers the CDC is now exercising. Well, even if the statute and the implementing regulations did permit this power, the CDC's order still fails to explain how a nationwide eviction ban is reasonably necessary It couldn't do this even if it wanted to. Well, there's more that could be said, but this unconstitutional rule is just one further example of the concerns that many Americans have about the collective overreach of those in authority exercising powers they were never granted. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We need to take a quick break and we'll break rather and we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. A rioting that erupted in cities across the United States after the Memorial Day uh, death of George Floyd in Minneapolis may rival the 1992 Los Angeles riots to become the most costly civil disorder in United States history. The civil disturbance in Los Angeles after the videotaped police beating of Rodney King in April and May of 92 caused $775 million in damages or $1.42 billion in today's dollars, according to the Insurance Information Institute. Well, those riots, however, were largely confined to one metropolitan area. Destruction and looting that erupted after Floyd's death was reported in at least 25 cities and spread into many suburbs as well. Well, the extent of damage was unknown as of late Monday, but a sample of local news reports suggests that it is widespread. In Pittsburgh, for example, the Public Safety Department reported 50 businesses and properties in downtown areas were damaged. The Downtown Seattle Association reported that 50 businesses had damaged uh, downtown and in the neighboring Chinatown International District. The Chicago Loop Alliance said at least 45 properties were damaged in the downtown area by rioting that also spread into the city's suburbs. In Madison, Wisconsin, 75 businesses were damaged and some were looted. The National Guard reported on Monday that it had deployed troops in 24 states to protect lives and property. We expect this to be a significant loss event as the impact is being experienced in large and small markets across the U.S. That's the spokesperson, uh, Mark Friedlander. However, because it is an ongoing event, it is premature to determine the volume of property loss that will be incurred. Civil disturbances generally cause modest property losses when compared to natural disasters. Data from the Insurance Information Institute shows But rioting in Los Angeles in August of 65, the second costliest civil disorder, caused $357 million in damages measured in 2020 dollars. Together, riots in Baltimore, Chicago, New York City in April of 68 was 23% a rather $231 million in damages in today's dollars. By comparison, Hurricane Harvey in 2017 caused an estimated $20 billion in damages. A property claims service over the weekend declared that the riots 
a, a catastrophe event, which means it projects damage um, of more than $25 million, suggests that this could be, this season could be the costliest in U.S. history. Uh, PCS hasn't designated a civil disturbance as a catastrophe since the Baltimore riots in 2015. But they're on the verge of doing it now. When you look at the United States, riot and civil disorder may generally look like a, a sub-U.S. $100 million risk, although with the potential for such greater losses, and this is insurance speak, uh, much of which um, uh, many of uh, the, co- the businesses who were damaged or destroyed, insurance may not cover the costs. And in terms of those who were black and brown whose businesses uh, were destroyed or significantly damaged, um, the percentage is higher than non-white businesses that were impacted by all of this. It could go into the billions, plural, uh, they're telling us now. Well, six billboards declaring no police, no peace have gone up, two each in New York City, Dallas and Atlanta, The move comes with an increase in both violence in the streets and angry anti-police rhetoric and actions. Two Los Angeles County Sheriff's deputies, ages 24 and 31, were shot and seriously wounded on Saturday night as they sat in their patrol car. And in St. Louis, a 35-year-old police officer was wounded in the shoulder during a traffic stop, becoming the ninth officer to be shot since the 1st of June. Americans want safety, security, and a clear vision of how to quell the violence. I'm excited to announce the launch of these billboards today because you cannot have peace without the police. Jessica Anderson, who's executive director of Heritage Action for America, the grassroots partner of the Heritage Foundation, said in a written statement, the billboards in the three cities are expected to reach a weekly audience of about four million. They will be displayed for two weeks. And it's important to point out that in recent polls, the majority of African-Americans support police reform and not uh, removing police altogether. Uh, In New York City, which eliminated the police department's violent crime unit, the billboards are displayed in Times Square at 7th Avenue and 48th Street and at Broadway and 44th Street. In Atlanta, one billboard stands across from CNN headquarters at Centennial Olympic Park Drive in Marietta Street. The other is in Peachtree Road East and Paces Ferry Road. In Dallas, the billboards are downtown on Main Street near Interstate 45 and on Cedar Spring Road. These cities are facing rising violence, deep cuts in public safety, and the resignation of their top police officers, Anderson points out. This is a time for all citizens and leaders to come together to support the important work and the sacrifices of law enforcement officers and push back against the left's campaign to defund the police. Several cities throughout the United States have supported defunding police departments, while some Democratic members of Congress call for similar actions in Washington. Senator Edward uh, Markey, a Democrat from Massachusetts, called Monday for police to be disarmed, ban tear gas and rubber bullets, he tweeted. The billboards urge citizens to sign The police pledge, which already had been signed by nearly 100,000, among the signers are former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp, and nearly 100 members of Congress, including House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy and Senators Ted Cruz, uh, Josh Hawley, Rick Scott, and Tom Cotton. The pledge calls on Americans to stand with America's police and pledge to oppose any bill, resolution, or movement to defund the police. This comes as homicides in New York City spiked by almost 50 percent in August with budget cutbacks compared with the same month in in 2019. The homicide rate in Atlanta is up nearly 150 percent since the protests following the killing of George Floyd by in police custody in Minneapolis. And Dallas is on the way to hitting its highest homicide rate in more than a decade. 
Now is the time for our elected officials at all levels of government to take a stand for peace and security over anarchy and chaos, Anderson adds. You can find out more at Heritage Action. Again, these billboards stating with the uh, uh, image of an African-American police officer, no police, no peace. Well, imagine if far-right demonstrators were laying siege to American cities for months, led by activists explicitly calling for an ethno-state and that one of their groups was funded by an outfit involved with Vladimir Putin's Russia. It would lead to news every day, and there would be congressional hearings, wouldn't there? Well, rightly so. The threat of foreign interference in our domestic affairs is a serious matter, whether the suspects are rivals such as Russia or friendlies such as Mexico. This is especially the case if a foreign power were abetting unrest that aims to topple our constitutional order. Well, the scenario described is happening, though not with Russia or the far right, but with China and the leftist disturbances upending America and seeking to transform it. There has not been a peep from the media or Congress about China's support of the riots. We'll talk more about that after the break that's coming up. But go to the website for the Black Futures Lab. It's a venture of Black Lives Matter founder Alicia Garza. And the uh, uh, click on the donate button. It will ask you to send your money to an obscure organization, the Chinese Progressive Association, explaining that Black Futures Lab is a fiscally sponsored project of the Chinese Progressive Association. Again, we'll talk more about that in just a few moments, but I do need to take a quick break. Uh, We'll talk about the history of the Chinese Progressive Association that is underwriting some of the work of uh, one uh, element of the Black Lives Matter movement, which is why it's important to know what we're talking about when we use phrases that are designed to make us a part of the 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 crowd. We're talking about the Black Futures Lab, a venture of the founder, Alicia Garza, of the Black Lives Movement. We'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We were talking about the Black Futures Labs, a venture of Black Lives Matter founder Alicia Garza. And it's a sponsored, uh, it is sponsored rather by the Chinese Progressive Association, which is an organization that works with China's communist government to push its agenda in the United States, according to an investigation by Mike Gonzalez at the Heritage Foundation. Well, Gonzalez discovered that the Black Futures Lab donation page explicitly states that they are a fiscally sponsored project of the Chinese Progressive Association, explaining where donations to Black Futures Labs are uh, funneled. Well, Gonzalez explains the history of the CPA in the United States, documenting the activities the group sponsors on behalf of the Chinese government, including one instance in which the People's Republic of China flag was flown over Boston City Hall to honor the takeover of China by the Chinese Communist Party. Well, the CPA is routinely praised for its work in the United States by China's official mouthpiece, China Daily. Well, it is clear then that CPA works with China's communist government, pushing its agenda here in the United States, and is readily, uh, regularly praised by China's state-owned mouthpiece, Gonzalez writes. It is clear, too, from the, the perspective uh, why the CPA would sponsor a new enterprise by Garza. They espouse the same desire for world communism. Well, Garza, the founder of Black Futures Lab, is also the founder of the openly Marxist global organization Black Lives Matter and is uh, the numerous uh, domestic organizations such as the Movement for Black Lives. They are related to it. 
the BLM organization sponsored and proposes Marxist public policies such as socialized ownership of resources, banks and businesses, a highly unequal income tax, putting everyone on welfare through a minimum income and government jobs. In 2015, BLM co-founder Patrice Cullors said that she and her fellow organizers are trained Marxist. Well, Garza's organization uh, that the Chinese Progressive Association funds, Black Futures Lab, appears to be a lobbying group advocating for local, state and federal level policies that make black communities stronger and goals which presumably fall in line with Garza's Marxist ideology. Well, the prominence of Black Lives Matter's role in heightening racial strife in America's recent years uh, cannot be understated. As Ben uh, Weingarten writes at The Federalist, BLM is collectively rooted in and devoted to Marxist uh, Jew hatred, violence, racism, social discord, and the undermining of our founding values and principles. Of course, China would see value in funding such an organization. So again, before signing on to or embracing a particular movement, it's important to know what lay behind it and what ultimately the goals are. To simply use the phrase Black Lives Matter, you might think conveys one singular thing, and it, it, it does and should. But the movement itself is connected far more deeply to Marxist ideology. And apparently through this particular organization, the Black Futures Lab, which is uh, organized by the founders of Black Lives Matter, the movement um, is connected to the Chinese communist government. Well, over 100 Jewish rabbis wrote a letter to Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos arguing the SPLC hate map is uniquely uh, detrimental and even dangerous to the Jewish community. The Amazon Smile program relies on the Southern Poverty Law Center to determine which charities qualify for donations. And while the SPLC has a well-established reputation as one of the most anti-Christian organizations in America after its hate map inspired 2012 Christian or, uh, organizations in America after its uh, shooting rather at the Family Research Council, this is the first time that the Jewish community has publicly spoken out about the danger SPLC poses to it. One Rabbi Menken explained in an interview on Washington Watch with Tony Perkins that the SPLC displays a very apparent bias to mark anti-Semitism coming out from concerned left-wing groups, especially those uh, affiliated with radical Islam. Well, in the letter, uh, their letter, the rabbis expressed their concern that the SPLC's inexplicable omission of groups which ally with international terror organizations openly uh, openly glorify murder under the guise of resistance and frequently descend into clearly anti-Semitic expression. The SPLC specifically avoids identifying radical Islamic groups as the leading source of modern-day anti-Semitic violence. Well, the SPLC classifies uh, groups based on what they supposedly hate, but it shows its bias by having no category for anti-Semitism. This omission is so glaring that the SPLC has found it necessary to try to explain it away in its uh, frequently asked questions segment. And although it claims anti-Semitic groups are all included in other categories, neo-Nazis and the like, this is just a facade it hopes will allow it to overlook radical Islamic violence entirely. Well, the rabbi's letter set the record straight. More Jews have been murdered in the past 50 years due to racial, uh, rather radical Islamic terror organizations than all those groups that the SPLC does mention combined. This level of dishonesty directly endangers the Jewish community, they write. Well, the SPLC doesn't stop at ignoring Islamic violence against Jews. It proactively partners with the Council on American Islamic Relations to identify what passes as Islamophobia. But as the letter points out, the FBI and a federal judge found that the Council on American Islamic Relations once conspired to provide material support 
to Hamas, an internationally recognized terrorist group with beliefs rooted in radical Islam and genocidal anti-Semitism written into its charter. Well, based on who it labels as hate groups, the SPLC must believe Christians can only incite hate and Muslims can only be its victims, said the letter. Minken, the rabbi, called it a stunning blind spot. Well, in 2019, top SPLC leaders were forced to resign after dozens of employees signed a letter alleging mistreatment, sexual harassment, gender discrimination, and racism persisted within the organization. Rabbi Minkin said that the SPLC has gone off mission, and while he said it started out doing good work by rooting out the KKK and other hate groups, they've exploited the goodwill of the public. Now, he said, it has decided that promoting a certain ideology is more important to them than fighting hate. But the SPLC's anti-Semitism goes even further. The uh, SPLC clarifies uh, pro-Jewish organizations as anti-Muslim. This has the effect of allowing anti-Semitic groups to receive funding through Amazon Smile and other participating programs, while at the same time, they stop funding for our allies, said Minken. Well, Amazon didn't... uh, Uh, did nothing after 15 members of Congress wrote in August alerting Bezos about the SPLC's anti-conservative and anti-Christian bias. Whether it will be more sensitive to the petition from the 100 rabbis remains to be seen. The rabbis concluded their letter with this plea. On behalf of the Jewish community and all who share concern for our lives and safety, we urge you to immediately terminate any association between Amazon Smile and the SPLC. We'll just have to wait and see what they decide to actually do in response to that plea. Well, President Trump is frequently accused of lying, but he doesn't have a monopoly on falsehood. Look around the Portland region and you'll see our local politicians are not telling us the truth. We live in our own Pinocchio land. So says the Cascade Policy Institute. They write that Metro's Get Moving 2020 ballot measure is a $5.2 billion tax increase disguised as a transportation measure. It's a permanent tax on the total compensation paid by every private business and nonprofit with more than 25 employees. Metro says it's a payroll tax, but it's much more. It will tax every dollar you earn, even the money you save for retirement. Comedian John Oliver says, if you want to do something evil, put it inside something boring. And that's what Portland City Council has done with a major charter change packaged as some minor housekeeping. Portland says the amendment merely clarifies the charter. In reality, the amendment will open a spending tap with water customers on the hook for every rising water bill. Portland Public Schools deserve its own wing of the Hall of Pinocchios. PPS put a $1.2 billion bond measure on the November ballot. About $200 million of the new money will be used to fill cost overruns on the projects funded by the 2017 bond. How did PPS run $200 million over budget? Simple. PPS lied to us. The school board intentionally lowballed cost estimates to fool voters into approving the measure. Well, this year, voters have to put, an, uh, put up Uh, and put an end to the billions of dollars in fibs our local politicians are telling. Pinocchio learned his lesson about lying, and it's time our politicians learned theirs. Uh, Dr. Eric Fruits is the vice president of research at the Cascade Policy Institute here in Oregon uh, on their free market public policy research center uh, efforts. You can learn more at the Cascade Policy Institute about these measures that will be on the ballot here in Oregon in November. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back for the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, the season will begin on the weekend of October the 23rd and 24th. I'm referring to the Big Ten. 
Apparently, football there is back. Now, this is just weeks after announcing the postponement of all fall semester sports. The Big Ten Conference and its Council of Presidents and Chancellors voted unanimously on Tuesday to resume the football season beginning October 23rd. Our focus with the task force over the last six weeks was to ensure the health and safety of our student athletes. Big Tim Commissioner Kevin Warren said in a statement Wednesday morning, our goal has always been to return to competition so all student athletes can realize their dream of competing in the sports they love. We're incredibly grateful for the collaborative work that our return to competition task force have accomplished to ensure the health, safety and wellness of students, athletes coaches and administrators. Well, the emergence of daily rapid response COVID-19 testing not available when the university president and chancellors decided to uh, pull the plug on the season helped trigger a revote. The PAC-12 recently announced to uh, a partnership rather with a diagnostic lab that will give the conference school the capacity to test athletes daily. The Big Ten believes it can do the same and that it's game uh, that is rather a game changer. Each team will have an eight game schedule, although the uh, details of that schedule will not be uh, known right away. The conference has adopted strident medical protocols that include daily antigen testing, enhanced cardiac screening for students who may test positive, and rigorous uh, data monitoring that will determine how schools can proceed with practices and games. So the Big Ten apparently is back. Testing will start on the 30th of September. Student athletes will do test posit- who do test positive at any point in the season will have to wait at least uh, 21 days before their uh, rather from their diagnosis, to return to competition. The move comes with sharp pressure from coaches, a lawsuit from players, and pressure from parents and even President Trump pushing for a Big Ten football season. The conference is home to a number of battleground states in the November election. Big Ten said it will make an announcement shortly. Uh, regarding other fall and winter sports that begin in the fall, and including men and women basketball, men's ice hockey, men and women's uh, swimming, diving, and wrestling. So maybe uh, there will be some sports to watch. Well, in a nod to the Netflix uh, film on uh, young girls' cuties we've talked about here on the program, the Babylon Bee paid uh, their respects with what I thought was a pretty funny story. The headline simply read, New Netflix movie actually murders puppies to teach that murdering puppies is bad. Huh. Uh, Netflix is emboldened to in controversy yet again, rather embroiled yet again, with its new documentary, Puppy Murder, a show where the, the director kills puppies to teach you that murdering puppies is bad. The movie is just two hours of puppies being brutally murdered on screen, sending a powerful message to the viewer about just how bad puppy murder is. From getting shot and stabbed and being run over with a steamroller and the inspiring climactic scene where a puppy is dropped into a volcano, the movie unequivocally and powerfully shows the brutal reality of puppy murder. Of course, this is a take, of course, on cuties where they use actual 11 and 12 year old girls to make the point that uh, you shouldn't exploit 11 and 10 year old uh, girls. Of course, that's precisely what they do. The Babylon Bee goes on. I thought about just uh, making a documentary where I didn't actually murder puppies to make the point, but it just wasn't powerful enough, said the director, who, by the way, is a woman of color and immigrant. So uh, think about that before you criticize her. Again, this is tongue in cheek. I drew on my own experience, having observed puppy murder a number of times and decided 
uh, how I would just drop anvils and pianos on them and stuff so that you could see how horrible puppy murder is, end quote. Well, many people spoke up against the film but were labeled triggered conservatives and scandal mongers since they obviously just didn't get the message on the film, which very clearly teaches that puppy murder is bad. The show has been a big success among psychopaths and future mass murderers and uh, we'll see a sequel called Baby Murder next fall. Again, a tongue-in-cheek response to Cuties, the Netflix film that has raised the ire of so many, not just uh, conservatives on that side of the political ideological continuum, but others as well. In fact, Nancy Pelosi's daughter spoke up and said, this is a real gift for pedophiles. You need to pan this movie and apologize. We'll see what Netflix actually chooses to do. Well, I received this in the mail today. In fact, I don't think I even mentioned it to you, uh, James, but once again, my, uh, my, my work here is in peril. It was issued to me from the publisher's clearinghouse. It doesn't actually explicitly say that I may have already won, although you and I both know I may have already won. But it is a winner search warrant. It's a winner search warrant. It's regarding an October 28, uh, rather, uh, 31st, 2020 prize event. Um, it was issued to me personally. My name is on it by the uh, publisher's clearinghouse executive director. And they write to me, in the matter of identifying a winner for your upcoming uh, $1,000 a day for life prize event, a nationwide search has been authorized and is warranted. A review of our files confirms, and then they offer my address here in Portland, is included in our nationwide search area for a prize authorized to be awarded soon, and that this is the residence of my name, Georgine Rice. Since your area is part of this search for a winner, we urge you, we urge you to respond to a publisher's clearinghouse notice pictured below that will arrive in your mail in just the next two or three days. The regulations require the awarding of the prize for $1,000 a day for life event um, as set forth in our official rules. Um, and they give some identification of those rules. This award is authorized to take place at the end of October. We know you're, uh, you've been uh, trying to win Georgine and the entry uh, from you, uh, your soon-to-arrive notice is one that will identify and definitely make you eligible to win the prize described herein. Your prompt response to that notice is therefore strongly urged. And it's signed by the executive director of the Publishers Clearinghouse. So uh, I don't know about you, but I am reading between the lines. And once again, I may have already won. Now, they don't say when I might win. It might not be 2020. Uh, this hasn't been a particularly stellar year. I'm just waiting now for the pestilence to follow everything else that we've experienced in the, sh the course of the last six, seven months. But uh, the Publishers Clearinghouse, $1,000 a day for life prize event is coming, and I may have already won. So I don't know if you received anything like this in the mail, but I'm just giving you a heads up. It could all come to an end sooner rather than later. Also, I want to mention that we are hosting here at KPDQ a virtual pastor's appreciation event. Now, for many years, 93.9 KPDQ has hosted an annual pastor's appreciation event. It's a highlight for many of us. It's for ministry leaders to come together for a few hours, share a meal, and hear a message of encouragement from one of the stellar Bible teachers from around the country. Well, this year, we're showing our appreciation the entire month of October by bringing pastors and ministry leaders a free virtual program. It's going to start on the 1st of October. We'll release a new program each Thursday featuring national speakers Chuck Swindoll, Tony Evans, John MacArthur, Alistair Begg, and others. It's all for you. 
for pastor's appreciation. We'll also have musicians such as Stephen Curtis Chapman for King and Country, Michael W. Smith, Natalie Grant, and more. Our virtual pastor's appreciation event is free. We want to encourage and minister to you pastors to register. Go to kpdq.com. The event is sponsored by Cascade Furniture, and we are delighted to bring this virtual event to pastors and leaders this October. We're out of time. I want to thank James Blind for producing, Clark Hilton for engineering today's program, and Dan Rice for the use of his office. Thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. I hope you'll join us here tomorrow. Good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.